0: Chapter Ten of Sixty Years in Southern California, eighteen fifty-three to nineteen thirteen, by Harris Newmark. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K Hand. Chapter Ten: Early Social Life, eighteen fifty-four. In June, eighteen fifty-four, my brothers sold out, and I determined to establish myself in business and thus become my own master. My lack of knowledge of English was somewhat of a handicap but youth and energy were in my favor and an eager desire to succeed overcame all obstacles upon computing my worldly possessions i found that i had saved nearly two hundred and forty dollars the sum total of my eight months wages and this sum i invested into my first venture my brother j p newmark opened a credit for me which contributed materially to my success and i rented the store on the north side of commercial street about 100 feet west of los angeles owned by matteo keller and just vacated by prudent beaudry little did i think in so doing that twelve years later some nemesis would cause beaudry to sell out to me i fully realized the importance of succeeding in my initial effort and this requited me for seven months of sacrifices until january 1st 1855 when i took an inventory and found a net profit of fifteen hundred dollars to give some idea of what was then required to attain such success i may say that having no assistance at all i was absolutely a prisoner from early morning until late in the evening the usual hour of closing as i have elsewhere explained being eight o'clock from sweeping out to keeping books i attended to all my own work And since i neither wished to go out and lock up nor leave my stock long unprotected i remained on guard all day giving the closest possible attention to my little store business conditions in the fifties were necessarily very different from what they are today there was no bank in los angeles for some years although downey and one or two others may have had some kind of a safe people generally hoarded their cash in deep narrow buckskin bags hiding it behind merchandise on the shelves until the departure of a steamer for san francisco or turning it into such vouchers as were negotiable and could be obtained here john temple who had a ranch or two in the north from which he sent cattle to his agent in san francisco generally had a large reserve of cash to his credit with butchers or bankers in the northern city and he was thus able to issue drafts against his balances there being glad enough to make the exchange free of cost when however temple had exhausted his cash the would-be remitter was compelled to send the coin itself by express he would then take the specie to the company's agent and the latter in his presence would do it up in a sealed package and charge one dollar a hundred for safe transmission no wonder therefore that people found expressing coin somewhat expensive and were more partial to the other method In the beginning of the fifties too silver was irregular in supply Nevada's treasures still lay undiscovered within the bowels of the earth and much foreign coin was in use here leading the shrewdest operators to import silver money from France Spain Mexico and other countries the size of coins rather than their intrinsic value was then the standard for example a five franc piece a Mexican dollar or coin of similar size from any other country passed for a dollar here while a mexican twenty five piece worth but fourteen cents was accepted for an american quarter so that these importers did a land office business half dollars and their equivalents were very scarce and these coins being in great demand among gamblers it often happened that they would absorb the supply this forced such a premium that eighteen dollars in silver would commonly bring twenty dollars in gold most of the output of the mines of southern california then rated as the best dust went to san francisco assayers who minted it into octagonal and round pieces known as slugs among those issuing privately stamped coins were j s ormsby whose mark j s o became familiar and augustus humbert both of whom circulated eight cornered ingots and wasmolitor and company whose slugs were always round Pieces of the value of from $1 to $25, and even miniature coins for fractional parts of a dollar, were also minted, while F. D. Kohler, the state assayer, made an oblong ingot worth about $50. Some of the other important assaying concerns were Moffat and Company, Kellogg and Company, and Templeton Reed baldwin and company was another firm which issued coins of smaller denomination and to this firm belonged david colbert broderick who was killed by terry usurers were here from the beginning and their tax was often ruinously exorbitant so much did they charge for money in fact that from two to twelve and a half percent a week was paid and this brought about the loss of many early estates i recollect for example that the owner of several thousand acres of land borrowed two hundred dollars at an interest charge of twelve and a half percent for each week from a resident of los angeles whose family is still prominent in california and that when principal and interest amounted to twenty two thousand dollars the lender foreclosed and thus ingloriously came into possession of a magnificent property For at least twenty years after i arrived in los angeles the credit system was so irregular as to be no system at all land and other values were exceedingly low there was not much ready money and while the credit of a large rancher was small compared with what his rating would be today because of the tremendous advances in land and stock much longer time was then given on running accounts than would be allowed now bills were generally settled after the harvest The wine-grower would pay his score when the grape-crop was sold, and the cattleman would liquidate what he could when he sold his cattle. In other words, there was no credit foundation whatever. Indeed, I have known accounts to be carried through three and four dry seasons. It is true, also, that many a fine property was lost through the mania of the Californian for gambling, and it might be just as well to add that the loose credit system ruined many i believe in fact it is generally recognized in certain lines of business that the too flexible local fiscal practice of today is the descendant of the careless methods of the past my early experiences as a merchant afforded me a good opportunity to observe the character and peculiarities of the people with whom i had to deal in those days a disposition to steal was a common weakness on the part of many especially indians and merchants generally suffered so much from the evil that a sharp lookout had to be kept on one occasion I saw a native woman deftly abstract a pair of shoes and cleverly secrete them on her person And at the conclusion of her purchases as she was about to leave the store I stepped up to her and with a dispense me you quietly recovered the Zapatos The woman smiled each of us bowed and the pilfering patron departed and nothing further was ever said of the affair this proneness to steal was frequently utilized by early and astute traders who kept on hand a stock of very cheap but gaudy jewelry which was placed on the counter within easy reach a device which prevented the filching of more valuable articles while it attracted at the same time this class of customers and as soon as the esteemed customers ceased to buy the trays of tempting trinkets were removed shyness of the truth was another characteristic of many a native that often had to be reckoned with by merchants wishing to accommodate as far as possible while avoiding loss one day in 1854 a middle-aged indian related to me that his mother who was living half a block north on main street and was between 80 and 90 years of age had suddenly died and that he would like some candles for which he was unable to pay to place around the bed holding the remains of the departed i could not refuse this filial request and straightway gave him the wax tapers which were to be used for so holy a purpose the following day however i met the old woman on the street and she was as lively a corpse as one might ever expect to see leaving me to conclude that she was lighted to her room the previous night by one of the very candles supposed to be then lighting her to eternity the fact that i used to order straw hats which came telescoped in dozens and were of the same pattern In the crown of one, which, at the top, I found one morning a litter of kittens tenderly deposited there by the store cat, recalls an amusing incident showing the modesty of the times, at least in the style of ladies' bonnets. S. Lazard and company once made an importation of leghorn hats, which, when they arrived, were found to be all trimmed alike, a bit of ribbon and a little bunch of artificial flowers in front being their only ornamentation. Practically all the fair damsels and matrons of the town were limited for the season to this supply a fact That was patent enough a few days later at a picnic held at San Savane's favorite vineyard and well patronized by the feminine leaders in our little world But to return to one or two pioneers David workman died soon after he came here in 1854 with his wife whose maiden name was Nancy Hook He was a brother of William workman and followed him to Los Angeles bringing his three sons thomas h killed in the explosion of the ada hancock elijah h and william h who was for a while a printer and later in partnership with his brother in the saddlery business elijah once owned a tract of land stretching from what is now main to hill street and around 12th workman street is named after this family henry mellis brother of francis mellis to whom i elsewhere more fully refer who had returned to new england was among us again in 1854 whether this was the occasion of Mellis's unfortunate investment or not, I cannot say, but on one of his trips to the East he lost a quarter of a million through an unlucky investment in iron. Jean B. Trudell, a nephew of Damien Marchault and a cousin of P. Baldry, for a short time in partnership with S. Lazard, was an old-timer who married Anita, the widow of Henry Mellis, and through this union a large family resulted. He conducted salt works, from which he supplied the town with all grades of cheap salt, and he stood well in the community. Mrs. Trudell took care of her aunt, Mrs. Bell, during her later years. With the growth of our little town, newspapers increased, even though they did not exactly prosper. On the 20th of July, 1854, C. N. Richards and Company started the Southern Californian, a name no doubt suggested by that of the San Francisco Journal, with William Butts as editor, and on November 2nd, colonel john o wheeler joined butts and bought out richards and company their paper was printed on one of dalton's corrugated iron houses the southern californian was a four-page weekly on one side of which was news editorials and advertisements often mere translations of matter in the other columns were published in spanish one result of the appearance of this paper was that Waite and company a month or so later reduced the subscription price of the star their new rate being nine dollars a year or six dollars in advance in eighteen fifty three a number of spanish american restaurant keepers plied their vocation so that mexican and spanish cooking were always obtainable then came the cafeteria but the term was used with a different significance from that now in vogue It was rather a place for drinking than for eating and in this respect the name had little of the meaning current in parts of mexico today where a cafetería is a small restaurant serving ordinary alcoholic drinks and plain meals nor was the institution the same as that familiarly known in the pacific coast towns and particularly in los angeles one of the first american cities to experiment with this departure where a considerable variety of food, mostly cooked and warm, is displayed to view, and then the prospective diner, having secured his tray and napkin, knife, fork, and spoons, indicates his choice as he passes by the steam-heated tables and is helped to whatever he selects, and then carries both service and viands to a small table. The native population followed their own cuisine, and the visitor to Spanish-American homes usually partook of native food. All the Mexican dishes that are common now, such as tamales, enchiladas, and, and frijoles, were favorite dishes then. There were many saloons in Sonora town and elsewhere, and mezcal and aguardiente, popular drinks with the Mexicans, were also indulged in by the first white settlers. Although there were imported wines, the wine drinkers generally patronized the local product. This was a very cheap article, costing about fifteen cents a gallon, and was usually supplied with meals without extra charge tamales in particular were very popular with the californians but it took some time for the incoming epicure to appreciate all that was claimed for them and other masterpieces of mexican cooking the tortilla was another favorite being a generous sized maize cake round and rather thin in the early preparation of which the grain was softened cleaned and parboiled after which it was rolled and crushed between two pieces of flat stone deft hands then worked the product into a pancake which was placed sometimes on a piece of stoneware sometimes on a plate of iron and baked first on one side and then on the other a part of the trick in tortilla baking consisted in its delicate toasting and when just the right degree of parching had been reached the crisp tasty tortilla was ready to maintain its position even against more pretentious members of the pancake family pan de huevos or bread of eggs was peddled around town on little trays by mexican women and when well prepared was very palatable panocha a dark mexican sugar made into cakes was also vended by native women pinole was brought in by indians and as far as i can remember it could not have had a very exact meaning since i have heard the term applied both to ground pine nuts and ground corn and it may also have been used to mean other food prepared in the same manner be this as it may the value to the indian came from the fact that when mixed with water pinole proved a cheap but nutritious article of diet i have told of the old-fashioned comfortable adobes broad and liberal whose halls rooms verandas and patios bespoke at least comfort if not elaborateness among the old california families dwelling within these houses there was much visiting and entertainment and i often partook of this proverbial and princely hospitality there was also much merrymaking the firing of crackers bell ringing and dancing the fandango yota and cachuca marking their jolly and whole-souled fiestas only for the first few years after i came was the real fandango so popular when dana visited los angeles and first saw don juan bandini execute the dance witnessed here little by little it went out of fashion perhaps in part because of the skill required for its performance balls and hops however for a long time were carelessly called by that name when the fandango really was in vogue bandini antonio coronel andres pico the lugos and other native californians were among its most noted exponents they often hired a hall gave a fandango in which they did not hesitate to take the leading parts and turned the whole proceeds over to some church or charity on such occasions not merely the plain people always so responsive to music and its accompanying pleasures were the fandangueros but the flower of our local society turned out en masse adding to the affair of a high degree of eclat there was no end too of good things to eat and drink which people managed somehow to pass around and the enjoyment was not lessened by the fact that every such dance-hall was crowded to the walls and that the atmosphere relieved by but a narrow door and a window or two was literally thick with both dust and smoke still living are some who have memories of these old fandango days and the journeys taken from suburb to town in order to participate in them Doña petra pilar lanfranco used to tell me how as a young girl she came up from the old palos verdes ranch-house in a carreta and was always chaperoned by a lady relative on such occasions the carreta would be provided with mattresses pillows and covers while at the end well strapped was the trunk containing the finery to be worn at the ball to reach town even from a point that would now be regarded as near a start was generally made by four o'clock in the morning and it often took until late the same evening to arrive at the belle union where final preparations were made one of the pleasant features of a fandango or hop was the use of cascarones or eggshells filled with one thing or another agreeable when scattered and for the time being sealed up these shells were generally painted and most often they contained many colored pieces of paper or the tinsel or repel cut up very fine not infrequently the shell of the egg was filled with perfume and in the days when californians were flush gold leaf or even gold dust was sometimes thus enclosed with a wafer and kept for the casamiento when it would be showered upon the fortunate bride the greatest compliment that a gentleman could pay a lady was to break one of these cascarones over her head and often the compliment would be returned the floor at the termination of such festivities being literally covered with bits of paper and eggshell when the fandango was on in all its mad delight a gentleman would approach a lady to salute her upon which she would bow her head slightly and permit him while he gently squeezed the egg-shell to let its contents fall gracefully over her head neck and shoulders and very often she would cleverly choose the right moment perhaps when he was not looking to politely reciprocate the courtesy under which circumstances he was in duty bound to detect if he could among the smiling blushing ladies the one who had ventured so agreeably to offend. Such was courtliness, in fact, among the native population that even at fandangos, in which the public participated and the compliment of the cascaron was almost universally observed, there was seldom a violation of regard for another's feelings. When such rowdyism did occur, however, prompted perhaps by jealousy, and bad eggs or that which was even less aromatic were substituted, serious trouble ensued and one or two fatalities are on record as growing out of such senseless acts speaking of fandangos it may be added that in january 1861 the common council of los angeles passed an ordinance requiring the payment in advance of ten dollars for a one-night license to hold any public dance within the city limits the pueblo was so small in the fifties and the number of white people so limited that whenever a newcomer arrived it caused considerable general excitement and when it infrequently happened that persons of note came for even a single night a deputation of prominent citizens made their short stay both noisy with cannonading and tiresome with spread-eagle oratory a very important individual in early days was peter biggs or nigger pete a pioneer barber who came here in eighteen fifty two having previously been sold as a slave to an officer at fort leavenworth and freed in california at the close of the mexican war he was a black-haired good-natured man then about forty years of age and had a shop on main street near the bella union he was indeed the only barber in town who catered to americans and while by no means of the highest tonsorial capacity was sufficiently appreciative of his monopoly to charge fifty cents for shaving and seventy-five cents for hair-cutting when however a frenchman named felix signorette whose daughter married ed mcginnis the high-toned saloon-keeper appeared some years later a barber by trade of whom we shall hear more later it was not long before pete was seriously embarrassed being compelled first to reduce his prices and then to look for more humble work in the early sixties pete was advertising as follows New Orleans Shaving Saloon, opposite Mellis's store on Main Street. prices reduced to keep pace with the times shaving twelve and a half cents hair cutting twenty five cents shampooing twenty five cents. Peter Biggs will always be on hand and ready to attend to all business in his line, such as cleaning and polishing the understanding together with an intelligence office and in city express. Also, washing and ironing done with all neatness and dispatch at reasonable rates Recalling biggs and his barber shop. I may say that in fitting up his place. He made little or no pretension He had an old-fashioned high-backed chair, but otherwise operated much as barbers do today People sat around waiting their turn and as biggs called next He sprinkled the last victim with Florida water applying to the hair at the same time his bear oil sure to leave its mark on walls and pillows after which with a soiled towel he put on the finishing touch for one towel in those days served many customers but few patrons had their private cups biggs served only men and boys as ladies dressed their own hair to some extent biggs was a maker or at least a purveyor of wigs besides peter biggs a number of colored people lived in los angeles at an early date five of whom belonged to the mexican veterans bob owens and his wife being among the most prominent owens who came here from texas in december eighteen fifty three was known to his friends as uncle bob while mrs owens was called aunt winnie the former at first did all kinds of odd jobs later profiting through dealings with the government while his good wife washed clothes in which capacity she worked from time to time for my family they lived in san pedro street and invested their savings in a lot extending from spring to fort streets between third and fourth owens died in eighteen sixty five their heirs are wealthy as a result of this investment in fact i should not be surprised if they are among the most prosperous negroes in america another colored man of the sixties was named barry though he was popularly known as uncle george he was indeed a local character a kind of popinjay and when not busy with janitor or other all-around scrub work sported among the negroes as an ultra fashionable elsewhere i have spoken of the versatility of dr william b osborne who showed no little commendable enterprise. In October 1854, he shipped to an agricultural convention in Albany, New York, the first Los Angeles grapes ever sent to the East, and the next year he imported roses, shrubbery, and fruit trees from Rochester. On October 13, 1854, a good-for-nothing gambler, Dave Brown, who had planned to rob John Temple on one of his business trips but was thwarted because Temple changed his route, murdered a companion, Pinkney Clifford, in a livery stable at what was later to become the corner of main and court streets and the next day the lawless act created such general indignation that vengeance on brown would undoubtedly then and there have been wreaked had not stephen c foster who was mayor met the crowd of citizens and persuaded them quietly to disperse in order to mollify the would-be vigilantes foster promised that if the case miscarried in the courts and brown was not given his due he would resign his office and would himself lead those who favored taking the law into their own hands And as Foster had been a lieutenant in the Rangers under Dr. Hope, showing himself to be a man of nerve, the crowd had confidence in him and went its way. On November thirtieth, Brown was tried in the district court, and Judge Benjamin Hayes sentenced him to hang on January twelfth, 1855, the same date on which Felipe Alvitre, a half-breed Indian, was to pay the penalty for killing James Ellington at El Monte. Brown's counsel were J.R. Scott, Cameron E. Tom, and J.A. Watson. And these attorneys worked so hard and so effectively for their client, that on January 10th, or two days before the date set for the execution, Judge Murray of the Supreme Court granted Brown a stay, although apparently no relief was provided for Alvitre. The latter was hanged in the Calabus or jail-yard, in the presence of a vast number of people, at the time appointed. Alvitre having been strung up by Sheriff Barton and his assistants, the rope broke, letting the wretch fall to the ground more dead than alive this bungling so infuriated the crowd that the cries of arriba arriba up with him up with him rent the air the executioners sprang forward lifted the body knotted the rope together and once more drew aloft the writhing form then the gallows was dismantled and the guards dismissed the news that one execution had taken place while the court in the other case had interfered was speedily known by the crowds in the streets and proved too much for the patience of the populace and only a leader or two were required to focus the indignation of the masses that leader appeared in foster who true to his word resigned from the office of mayor and put himself at the head of the mob appeals evoking loud applause were made by one speaker after another each in turn being lifted to the top of a barrel and then the crowd began to surge toward the jail poles and crowbars were brought and a blacksmith called for and the prison doors which had been locked bolted and barred were broken in very soon convincing the sheriff and his assistants, if any such conviction were needed, that it was useless to resist. In a few minutes Brown was reached, dragged out and across Spring Street, and there hanged to the crossbeam of a corral gateway opposite the old jail, the noose being drawn tight while he was still attempting to address the crowd. When Brown was about to be disposed of, he was asked if he had anything to say, to which he replied that he had no objections to paying the penalty of his crime, but that he did take an exception to a lot of greasers shuffling him off. Brown referred to the fact that Mexicans especially were conspicuous among those who had hold of the rope, and his coarsely expressed objection striking a humorous vein among the auditors, the order was given to indulge his fancy and accommodate him, whereupon Americans strung him up. Of those who had previously volunteered to act as hangman for brown was juan gonzales but within four months that is in may eighteen fifty five gonzales himself was sent to the penitentiary by judge myron norton convicted of horse stealing a rather amusing feature of this hanging was the manner in which the report of it was served up to the public the lynching bee seemed likely to come off about three o'clock in the afternoon while the steamer for san francisco was to leave at ten o'clock on the same morning so that the schedules did not agree a closer connection was undoubtedly possible at least so thought billy workman then a typo on the southern californian who planned to print a full account of the execution in time to reach the steamer so billy sat down and wrote out every detail even to the confession of the murderer on the improvised gallows and several hours before the tragic event actually took place a wet news sheet was aboard the vessel and on its way north A few surplus copies gave the lynchers the unique opportunity, while watching the stringing up, of comparing the written story with the affair as it actually occurred. While upon the subject of lynching I wish to observe that I have witnessed many such distressing affairs in Los Angeles, and that, though the penalty of hanging was sometimes too severe for the crime, and I have always deplored, as much as any of us ever did, the administration of mob justice, Yet the safety of the better classes in those troublous times often demanded quick and determined action, and stern necessity knew no law. And what is more, others besides myself, who have also repeatedly faced dangers no longer common, agree with me in declaring, after half a century of observation and reflection, that milder courses than those of the vigilance committees of our young community could hardly have been followed with wisdom and safety. Wood was the only regular fuel for many years, and people were accustomed to buy it in quantities and to pile it carefully in their yards. When it was more or less of a drug on the market, I paid as little as three dollars and a half a cord. In winter I had to pay more, but the price was never high. No tree was spared, and I have known my magnificent oaks to be wantonly felled and used for fuel. Valuable timber was often destroyed by squatters, guilty of a form of trespassing that gave much trouble, as I can testify from my own experience. Henry Dwight Barrows, who had been educated as a Yankee schoolmaster, arrived in Los Angeles in December 1854 as private tutor to William Wolfskill. Other parts of Barrows' career were common to many pioneers. He was in business for a while in New York, caught the gold fever, gave up everything to make the journey across the Isthmus of Panama, on which trip he was herded as one of seventeen hundred passengers on a rickety coast vessel, and finally after some unsuccessful experiences as a miner in northern california he made his way to the southland to accept the proffered tutorship hoping to be cured of the malarial fever which he had contracted during his adventure barrows taught here three years returned east by steamer for a brief trip in eighteen fifty seven and in eighteen fifty nine to sixty tried his hand at cultivating grapes in a vineyard owned by prudent beaudry on november fourteenth eighteen sixty Barrows was married to Wolfskill's daughter, Senorita Juana, and later he was county school superintendent. In 1861, Lincoln appointed Barrows United States Marshal, the duties of which office he performed for four years. In 1864, having lost his wife, he married the widow, formerly Miss Alice Woodworth, of Thomas Workman. The same year, he formed a partnership with J. D. Hicks under the firm name of J. D. Hicks and Company, and sold tin and hardware for twelve or fifteen years. In eighteen sixty-eight, bereaved of his second wife, Barrows married Miss Bessie Ann Green, a native of New York. That year too, he was joined by his brother James Arnold Barrows, footnote, died June ninth, nineteen fourteen, end footnote, who came by way of Panama and bought thirty-five acres of land afterward obtained by the University of Southern California about eighteen seventy four barrows was manufacturing pipe for years he dwelt with his daughter mrs r g weiss contributing now and then to the activities of the historical society and taking a keen interest footnote died august 7, nineteen fourteen and footnote in los angeles affairs about eighteen fifty four or eighteen fifty five i m samuel and herman who must not be confused with h w hellman arrived here i m preceding his brothers by a short period in time i m hellman in san francisco married miss caroline adler and in eighteen sixty two her sister miss adelaide came south on a visit and married samuel hellman one of the children of this union is maurice s hellman who for many years associated with joseph f sartori has occupied an important position in banking and financial circles in eighteen fifty four or eighteen fifty five bishop and beale a firm consisting of samuel a bishop and e f beale became owners of an immense tract of kern county land consisting of between two and three hundred thousand acres this vast territory was given to them in payment for the work which they had done in surveying the butterfield route later incorporated in the stage road connecting san francisco with st louis recently i read an account of beals having been an indian agent at the reservation but if he was i have forgotten it i remember colonel james f vineyard an indian agent and later senator from los angeles one of whose daughters was married in eighteen sixty two to congressman charles DeLong of nevada city and afterward united states minister to japan and another daughter to dr hayes of los angeles bishop after a while sold out his interest in the land and moved to san jose where he engaged in street car operations he was married near san gabriel to miss francis young and i officiated as one of the groomsmen at the wedding after bishop disposed of his share colonel r s baker became interested but whether or not he bought bishop's interest at once is not clear in my memory it is worth noting that Bakersfield, which was part of this great ranch, took its name from Colonel Baker. Sometime later, Baker sold out to Beale and then came south and purchased the San Vicente ranch. This rancho comprised of the whole Santa Monica district and consisted of 30,000 acres, which Baker stocked with sheep. On a part of this land, the soldier's home now stands. Hilliard P. Dorsey, another typical Western character, was Register of the Land Office and a leading mason of early days. He lived in Los Angeles in 1853, and I met him on the Goliath in October of that year, on the way south, after a brief visit in San Francisco, and while I was bound for my new home. We saw each other frequently after my arrival here, and I was soon on good terms with him. When I embarked in business on my own account, therefore, I solicited Dorsey's patronage. One day Dorsey bought a suit of clothes from me on credit— A couple of months passed by, however, without any indication on his part that he intended to pay, and, as the sum involved meant much to me at the time, I was on the lookout for my somewhat careless debtor. In due season, catching sight of him on the other side of the street, I approached, in genuine American fashion, and unceremoniously asked him to liquidate his account. I had not then heard of the notches in friend Dorsey's pistol, and was so unconscious of danger that my temerity seemed to impress him. I believe in fact that he must have found the experience novel. However that may be, the next day he called and paid his bill. In relating the circumstance to friends, I was enlightened as to Dorsey's peculiar propensities and convinced that youth and ignorance alone had saved me from disaster. In other words, he let me go, as it were, on probation. Dorsey himself was killed some time later by his father-in-law William Rubottom, who had come to El Monte with Ezekiel Rubottom in eighteen fifty two or eighteen fifty three. After quarrelling with Ruebottom, Dorsey, who was not a bad fellow but of a fiery temper, had entered the yard with a knife in his hand, and Ruebottom had threatened to shoot him if he came any nearer. The son-in-law continued to advance, and Ruebottom shot him dead. M.J. Newmark, Ruebottom's attorney, who had been summoned to El Monte for consultation as to Dorsey's treatment of Ruebottom's daughter, was present at the fatal moment and witnessed the shooting affray. Uncle Billy Ruebottom, as he was familiarly called, came to Los Angeles County after losing heavily through the bursting of Yuba Dam, and was one of the founders of Spadra. He named the settlement, laid out on a part of the San Jose Rancho after his hometown, Spadra Bluffs in Arkansas, and opened a hotel, which he made locally famous, during a decade and a half, for barbecue and similar events, giving personal attention, usually while in shirt sleeves, to his many guests. In his declining years, Uncle Billy lived with Kellen H. Dorsey, his grandson, who was also prominent in Masonic circles. End of chapter 10